You're listening to a podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au where we celebrate talented Australian writers and their books. On the cusp of 50, Adam Sharp has a loyal partner, earns a good income as an IT contractor, and is the music trivia expert at Quiz Nights. It's the lifestyle he wanted, but something's missing. Two decades ago, on the other side of the world, his part-time piano playing led him into a passionate relationship with Angelina Brown, who'd abandoned law studies to pursue her acting dream. She gave Adam a chance to make it something more than an affair, but he didn't take it. And now he can't shake off his nostalgia for what might have been. Then, out of nowhere, Angelina gets in touch. What does she want? Does Adam dare to live dangerously? How far will he go for a second chance? So that's the blurb from the back of the Best of Adam Sharp. Welcome, Graham Simpson. I am thrilled with this book. The Best of Adam Sharp, Graham's latest, after his uh, enormous success with The Rosie Project and The Rosie Effect. Um, Graham, I read this overnight. <laughs> I couldn't put it down. And uh, it, it has so many... Um, facets of this novel that, that I think will touch people's hearts. So congratulations on a well, fantastic well, book. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I've achieved the first thing I set out to do whenever I write, which is um, to grab the reader. Um, and, and I think that's almost the, particularly if you're writing popular fiction, um, that's the first duty of the author. If you don't have the reader's attention, you can't do anything. And I think it applies to literary fiction as well, that um, you want to do something that keeps the reader up, can't put the book down, and after that, after that they're yours to do as you were with. Well, um, your first two books were about relationships, and this is, in a different way, about relationships as well. So this seems to be your forte, your understanding of people's motivations and people's relationships uh, romantically um, and non-romantic as well. So um, where did you get the idea for this book? Okay, well, I, I guess first I wrote about relationships because, you know, I've never been to war, I haven't been a spy, I haven't deliberately killed anybody, um, you know, but, but I, I've certainly been in a, in a range of relationships, I've observed those around me, and, and I think for most, for most people, um, their, their close relationships are a tremendously important part of their lives. So if I can cast some sort of light on that or raise some questions about relationships, I think that's, that's fertile territory for a writer. Um, so the idea for the book... Look, I, I often say to people who are searching for ideas for, for novels or short stories or whatever it might be, um, screenplays, whatever, I say, make a list of all the ideas that you have as they come along. And then when you get a good long list, pick the idea that appeals to you most of the time that you'd like to work with and then go back to the list and see if you can pair it with one of the other ideas that appeals to you. Because if you say, I want to write a book about a relationship rekindled, which is what Adam Sharp's about, or I want to write a book about a socially challenged man searching for love, which is what The Rosie Project is about, you know, someone will have done that before. You won't be unique at all. But if you add another dimension to it, um, as in The Rosie Project, if you add the dimension of a woman searching for her biological father um, through, through surreptitious DNA testing, yeah, you, you bring those two together... Um, and you've got something which is which is almost certainly unique, has a better chance of being unique. So there were two things, almost three, that um, inspired Adam Sharp. The first um, was a visit um, from my wife's ex-lover. Um, 
Oh, that's interesting. Well, it, it was. And, and, and of course, what you do in a book is you make it more interesting. But um, she kept in touch with this guy. He was someone she'd dated before me. And I, I met him. We didn't get on for, for obvious reasons at the time. And you know, we were in our 20s back then. And then all these years later, yeah, she'd been in touch with him over the years. But he lived in Manchester. She lived in Melbourne. I mean, what could go wrong? Um, but we were on holiday. <laughs> so you thought. <laughs> so I thought, well, we were on holiday in France. And he got in touch to say that he and his wife had split up. And Anne, my wife, said, why, doesn't, why don't we invite him? We're not far away to come over across the channel and spend a few nights for this. And I wasn't particularly enthused by this idea at first. But yeah, long story short, um, she persuaded me. He came over. He was delightful. We all got on well, and you know, it was a fairly boring ending. Um, but I took the idea and said, well, what if? What if um, these guys had carried a torch for each other for all these years, and now, well, he was, he was free, yeah, maybe that might go somewhere. And how would I behave if this was on again in our place? What would it take for him to have that that appeal? You know, that would. Um, so that that was part one. And the second thing was, I was at a conference, um, uh, a retreat that, that people go on, and in the evening, um, a bunch of us gathered around a piano because one of our colleagues was a piano player, and. One of uh, uh, the, the guys said, can you play the song Against the Wind by Bob Seger? And, and Pete plays Against the Wind. And this guy's got tears running down his face. And I look at him, he's this tough guy, he's a big guy. And he says, oh, you know, there was this girl. <laughs> and I thought to myself, how much um, music is, is this, this shared part of our culture? And that for, for some men in particular, of my generation at least, it can sometimes be their, their only emotional outlet. One, but you know, you'll never see tears in their eyes except when they're listening to some. So many, many um, men of my generation have a, almost an obsession with, um, with rock music that goes above and beyond just enjoying music. So I thought I'd like to explore that idea um, and the nostalgia and, and expression of feelings through music. And that led me to the idea of a book with a soundtrack. I, you know, with, with a movie, because I studied screenwriting originally, with a movie you've got a, a soundtrack which is going to a very important part of the film in some cases. Sometimes it can even be more important than the story. I mean, I think we remember um, movies like The Big Chill and so forth, so much for their soundtrack. Um, so I thought of the idea of having a book where music featured so heavily in the book, um, and as part of the plot, it would have to be that you would pretty much hear that in the background and that would add an extra dimension for the reader. And that, that proved a very challenging thing to do. But those were the, the strands, if you like, that came together um, to produce Adam Sharp, which is the story of um, a love affair rekindled, of a, a love affair that didn't make it, and then um, and nostalgia for it through music and the woman getting back in touch after 22 years. Yes, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I had some thoughts about um, uh, how often people, when they have a breakup, they'll often go back to an earlier relationship. Do you think that's a healthy thing? Well, look, I, I talked about this at some length with, with my wife, Anne Buist, um, who you've also interviewed, um, who's um, a psychiatrist and excellent. When, you, when you're writing novels that, that you try to have a, a strong psychological base to it, it's good to be able to bounce it off. And you were comment, very fortunate. <laughs> well, the comment was that shared memories are a crucial thing. And if you've been with somebody for a long time, you know, if you've been in a long-term marriage, 25 years or so, and you split, something that particularly hurts is, is, you know, I was in a, a 10-year relationship at one stage. I, I broke up, and the thing that really hurt was all those things we'd done together that we could no longer sit down, talk about, laugh about, and share. And, you it's know, a big loss. It's, yeah. a huge, it's a huge loss. And I think connecting with someone from the past 
takes gives you instant shared memories again. You don't need to rebuild those. You need to say, all right, this was belonged to a time before person X came on the scene, so we have shared memories that are, are free of the person that I've just broken up with. Um, it's yeah. an interesting um, concept, and I, uh, somebody uh, that I know who is, you know, uh, our age, said, um, you know, a lot of men go out with younger women, but he couldn't do that because he couldn't share any memories or any, you know, they wouldn't understand. No, look, look, I mean, that, that's certainly the downside of it, and you know, um, it's not a practical issue for me at the moment, and I hope it doesn't become one. But, but you know, I would think that if I was seeking another partner. Yeah, I would be looking much more in my own my own sort of age range for it. But for those for those reasons, you want to have conversations that come out of a, a shared culture to some degree. Mm. And so let's go. A lot of our listeners are writers, so let's talk about the writing of this book. Um, are you a plotter or a pantser? I'm I'm very very distinctly a plotter, and and I'm almost um, evangelical about plotting. So, so what I would say first is, if you are a pantser, if you're Zadie Smith and you've won the Orange Prize for fiction and so forth, and you've got a best-selling book out at the moment, and you are a pantser. Do not listen to me, and I'm sure she doesn't. Um, so if, you, if, if pantsing is working for you, and you are achieving the results you want, by all means. But if you are getting to 30,000 words and running out of puff and having to start another book, if you are constantly suffering from writer's block, in other words, if pantsing isn't working for you, for God's sake, try plotting. Um, almost every profession works in a plotting style of way, in the sense that they have an outline before they start, they work top down and bottom up together, they have some sort of a, a broad plan. Coming out of a technology background and then into screenwriting, I was sort of destined to be a plotter. Um, you know, screenwriters are consummate plotters. Um, they, they do the cards, you know, scene by scene, that's their plot, as it were. And in fact, the actual writing, particularly in, say, um, serial television and so forth, is often subcontracted out. So the, the writer's room is in there really intensely coming up with plot, and then they'll say, okay, get one of our subcontractors to, you know, to knock this baby together, and then we'll, we'll review it. So I'm, I'm very distinctly a plotter. Um, I, I think um, and one of the things you learn from screenwriting is that plotting works better, I'll say, if there is more than one person at it. It's a collaborative thing in screenwriting, I think. No, nobody is producing more story per hour, if you like, than the guys writing these these um, high quality television serials. You know, the, the Breaking Bad's, going back to the Sopranos. Um, it, there's a lot of story there, and it comes out of a writer's room, out of a, out of a group. Um, now, so that's really, it's a very small group. It's me and my wife um, spend time plotting together, and we are each the main drivers for our own books. So I will have a, a loose plot, but then I'll be saying to Anne look, I've got a problem here, or I, I really need Adam to have something that, that drags him down at this point, or it needs a reason for this, or whatever it might be. So if I can sort of expand on the question, um, I think that there are three stages to writing a book. There's um, planning or plotting. There's, and I call it planning rather than plotting, because at the planning stage, I'm also looking at character arcs. Um, I'm looking at themes, first cut. But you know, I'm I'm putting you know the the main ideas in place for what this book is going to be, and I say I guess mainly it would be the the beats, um, the scenes, if you like. This happens and this happens and this happens, um, which gives me a structure. Um, plus the character, the character arcs. You know, his desire is this, and he ends up here, whatever. Uh, but I have character profiles and so forth. That's stage one. Stage two is the is the draft, the first draft, 
And I and, sorry, and stage three is rewriting. Now I think every writer can can be looked at in terms of their process using those three stages. But someone who says they're a, a, a pantser does very little of the planning. I mean, they've got to do something. They've got to at least say, look, I want to write a book about a guy whose relationship is rekindled. So that's a bit of planning. That's a concept. Um, others put a lot of time into it. Um, everybody has to write a draft. And then some will do more or less time in the rewriting. Now, my proportions are some months on the planning. I do a lot of planning. Very, very fast on the first draft. I mean, we are talking for Adam Sharp 16 days. Um, 16 days, wow. and we're talking, it was 60,000 words in the first draft, and it's ended up about half that much again. So, But there's the story, it's on the page, and really the story has not changed significantly over many drafts. And then the rewriting, and for Adam Sharp, that was um, about a year. So, and that rewriting is, um, you know, in, in my experience... So one and three are the, are the longest... longest I put the, yeah, I mean, it's exhilarating to do that middle stage of writing that first draft. Um, but I don't get writer's block doing it because I am just tearing through. I know what I'm going to write. You're on a roll. It's all in your head. If um, if you get into trouble, you feel anything that's stopping you, you've got two options. Most of the time, I just lower my standards. I just say, doesn't matter, Graham. Just tell the story. It doesn't have to be, you know... It doesn't have to be Booker Prize prose at this stage. We can come back and we we're gonna, we know we're going to come back and make it better. Just get the story down and what's get the facts down. And in an emergency, if I really get stuck and say, I just can't see how this is going to work, I just jump ahead and do another scene, which I can do. Pick an easy one. If it's a bad day, I've got a hangover. I'm not going to not work. I'll, I'll write that scene. Um, Actually, you're very, very fortunate to have a wife who's the psychiatrist and a writer and um, I'm, uh, I'm quite envious it would be lovely as a writer to be married to another writer, especially from a different perspective. She writes different kind of novels, yet similar in, in some ways. Yeah, look, they're certainly similar in that the, what we are both interested in is people um, and, and their motivations. Um, we, we don't want to write um, just action, for example, where we've got the bad guy comes on the scene and they've got no real motivation um, or, or their motivation is very, very simple and basically they want money or they want to kill someone because they killed their brother. Or, and they're largely plot-driven, aren't oh, they? Yeah, Those yeah. high-action novels? Yeah, plot absolutely. But, you know, um, you look towards literary fiction and the, the character studies there are not always deep. I mean, there used to be an idea that literary fiction was, was differentiated by it having you know, depth of character rather than complex plots. Yeah. Um, but I think these days literary fiction tends to be seen as, as beautiful writing. And you can write beautifully without ever really exploring character. Um, and my, my interest is, you know, what, what I want most in, in a book to do, and that's to, um, to look at the human condition, to look at people, to look at why they do things and so on. And, and look, I think you know, a book like, like Adam Sharp, which is, um, look, I think the books I write are, re as you said, pretty readable. They keep you up, hopefully, at night. And, and people then think, well, it can't be very, very deep. And, and look, hardly anybody reads it comments on things like, you know, where did Adam's uh, nostalgia come from? And yet, you know, psychologically, Adam's a guy whose father left him when he was quite young, who romanticised his father, who was settled into a pattern of romanticising things that, you know, uh, um, are gone from him. And we, we learn quite late in the book that Adam has, has done that, that he's that his father's really a crumb and, and so on. Um, but, you know, whether, whether those sorts of um, uh, psychological frameworks or, or backstories for people... Um, come through to most readers, I don't know, but certainly for me it gives the book um, 
you know, a level of authenticity and, and value. What kind of uh, books do you read when you're not writing? What, what do you enjoy reading? Well, first of all, I'm, it's been a while since I was not writing. Um, and, and I actually find reading while I'm writing quite difficult, um, I guess for three reasons. Um, the first is it just takes away time. And I like to really bury myself in writing a book and get into that space. So you, know, you just it takes time to read a book. I could be writing. Um, the second um, is voice. Um, that if I'm reading somebody else's writing, particularly if it's in anything like the same space as mine, there's a, a risk that I'm going to be infected by that that style of writing. And the third is just plain intimidation. Um, you, if, if you're reading good work, you think, oh my God, I can never write, I can never get there. This is so much better than what I'm writing at the moment. And of course it is, because you're still in a draft stage and you, you're going to have to go through a lot of effort, as presumably the um, the original writer, whoever you're reading, had to go through to get there. So you're seeing the result of many iterations of editing and so forth, and you're, you're benchmarking yourself against that. Um, but, you know, when I end up reading these days, what I tend to end up, you know, I... I have a reading program that is dictated to me to some degree by um, publishers wanting me to endorse books um, and by appearances at festivals and so on where um, if I'm, I'm running a panel, for example, at a festival, then I better read the, the books of the people on the panel. And that takes up a, a fair chunk. Um, yeah, and then I, when getting beyond that, I try to read um, you know, the books, the quality books that are getting some attention. I try to go back and read some things I haven't read for a while you know, I've never read you know, Midnight's Children, for example. That, that's on my list. I mean, why haven't I read that book? It needs to be, yeah, I need to do that. So, yeah. You have a pile of books next to your bed. <laughs> I have, I have a massive table. pile of books next to my bed. Um, I have Wolf Hall um, about a third read, and it's been sitting there for quite a while, and I've managed to sneak and so read three read, or four books in between. Do you read between. more than one, one book at a time? Yeah, I do. I do, yeah. So, uh, but you only write one book at a time. Is that right? Or do you um, write more than one? No, I only write one book at a time. Um, I may have ideas for other books churning away in that sort of light planning stage, um, but even I wouldn't interrupt a book to write a short story normally. I mean, it happens. I might interrupt the editing of a book to write a short story, I guess. That, that happened a couple of times with Adam Sharp. I mean, the writing, the editing was over a year or so, and I probably got three or four short stories written in that time. So do you, do you enjoy writing short stories uh, or, or compared to novels or what? You know, yeah, you yeah. A novel no, there's, there's, look, um, at the end of the day, the novel feels like a bigger achievement, as, as you would expect. But in terms of um, value for effort, if you like, short stories are great. Um, and you know, different different topics um, require different media. I mean, some things might be better written as a screenplay or a short play, whatever. Now, your, your background is screenwriting, and, and uh, there's talk of um, the Rosie Project on the film, is that right? Yeah, that's the question everybody asks. Um, look, well, you when, can just when, see when, it, okay. can't you? When I say my background is screenwriting, my education is screenwriting. I've never worked as a professional screenwriter, um, except to, to write The Rosie Project as a screenplay, and that, that got me you know, work around that. Um, look, it, it's in development with uh, with Sony Pictures. It has gone up and down. We've had Jennifer Lawrence attached. We've had Richard Linklater attached. We've had um, uh, yeah, look, a number of... Um, of experienced actors, directors, um, uh, rewriters, and so on, attached. But, you know, Hollywood's like that. It's a roller coaster. It goes up and down. So I, I, I don't allow myself to worry about stuff that I can't influence or control. I just say, that's happening on the back burner. 
um, let's get on with writing some more books. Um, it's interesting you, you mentioned Hollywood um, because the Australian film industry is coming on now. Uh, but um, when I was uh, talking to Stephen Dando Collins, he said that there's, there's still not enough. We're still in infancy in, in Australia in the film industry because they don't have enough money behind them, whereas in Hollywood there's a, there's a lot of money. Well, the other thing about Hollywood is that it's largely privately funded, whereas um, you know, there's a, a very strong relationship to, to government support or you know, incentives in, in Australia, and some of that is discretionary. Um, so, you know, in other words, you have to have a... Um, it will help to have a screenplay or a concept that um, the film bodies are interested in. And I have to say that you know, middle-aged males in romantic stories, you know, middle-aged, white, able males, is not, you know, without, without any particular Australian-ness about them, is you know, not, I think, where the focus has been, at least in recent years. Mm. Well, the best of Adam Sharp's, from, he's from the UK. He is, so, and look, so, I, look I, think, yeah. I think this is one that I think would be fun to make as an Australian film or Australia-UK partnership. I expect if there are, you know, my, my um, agents having to come with a book, I expect the office will come from the UK. Um, but um, it would be fun to have um, an Australian component in that. But again, it's something you've really got to look at and say, well, we've got to regard this as being something which will make its money at the box office, not something which um, is going to be heavily funded out of... Um, yeah, and, and talking about the funding question, you know, with, um, with Australian writers, um, there's a big um, push in trying to get more and more funding culturally, you know, from the government. Um, do, you believe it, do you believe that writers should be able to support themselves or, or what do you think about, uh, you know, the financial implications of being a writer? Because you've been in other businesses so tell me, tell me how it compares to other businesses. Oh, look, it's like being a professional golfer or an actor. There are a bunch of, of um, professions for where only a very few people are able to make a living um, at, at it. And some of those make a phenomenal living, J.K. Rowling's and so on of this world. So you've got a strata with a very few people make an awful lot of money. Uh, another group, which, which you number probably in the hundreds or thousands at best, um, who are making you know, a, a decent living out of it. And beyond that, you've got people who are perhaps getting some income from it, but not enough to sustain themselves unless they've got a partner or some other source of funds that's, you know, that, that's coming in. So those people largely have day jobs and so forth. Look, I think it's the nature of those sorts of jobs, and, and I think it is um, disingenuous for people to go in and then complain later that they're not getting the support they want. Now at a more social engineering case, okay, is that the way that we want things to be? Do we want a society where, do we want more writing, more people who are making a living out of writing in our society? And the question, you know, probably, the answer may well be yes. The question is how you actually go about engineering that. And I, in a country like Australia, I think the difficulty you get into, and you get the same in the film world, is that you're at risk of having a small club of people who are supporting each other, that it's hard to break into, um, that there is a sense of, look, I'll say political correctness, but using that in the broadest term, not meaning necessarily left-wing or anything like that, but just saying you can get a group think that says this is the, what, the sort of writing that we want. It's a bit clicky, that, isn't that, it? Yeah, well, that, that, is, that is the risk. And, um, and some, you know, certainly some people in the film industry are very open about this. They say, look, when we see a screenplay, we know who's written that screenplay. It's a small industry. We know that that same person might be on a panel you know, next time around 
discussing ours. So, yeah, look, um, I sometimes feel that you know, it's a bit like Winston Churchill talked about democracy, and he said it's the um, the worst the worst uh, system of government except for all the others. And, and I rather feel a bit that way about about the free markets in in writing. It, yeah, it's it's appalling in many ways, but but as soon as you start to put you know different things in, what you generally find is that um, that you're supporting worthy projects, you know, good literature and so forth. Um, which uh, doesn't necessarily correlate to what the public wants. It's then seen as elitist and, and so on and so forth. So I, I don't have I don't have a simple answers here. Um, no, but no. I think but I think that um, that too many people do have simple answers, which I don't think is necessarily viable. Let's get back to your your writing career and the latest book that you're working on at the moment with your good wife. Tell us a little bit about that. That sounds very exciting. Okay. Well, look, I guess I guess one of the things that that um, you get out of screenwriting is that concept is king. That, that really, um, if you've got the concept, almost the rest is detail. And you, you're Abraham Lincoln slays vampires. The what, yeah. the what? Work out the why later. How? But, yeah, <laughs> it's the it's the one liner pitch. And you know, and you know, particularly talking about Hollywood and so forth, they're not looking for the, the wonderful crafting of screenplay. They say, yeah, we like that. Yeah, we like um, you know, socially challenged man seeks you know seeks wife. Yep, we, we'll buy that. Not you know, anything beyond that. So I'm always looking, if you like, for a killer concept for the book. And look, for this, or at least a point of difference, at least being hold the book up and say, this is a little different. And the idea that Anne and I had was to write a romantic comedy where we wrote um, alternate chapters, where Anne wrote the woman's point of view, I wrote the man's point of view. And You must have had a lot of fun with that. Look, we have. Um, and this is, this is a, a story set on the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, the famous... Pilgrim's Walk, in which our case, twice. which we've done a couple of times, yeah, in, and we've done longer versions of it. I mean, when people talk about it, they're usually talking about around 800, 850 kilometres from the French-Spanish border to um, Santiago de Compostela in, in Spain, near the, near the coast, um, near the sort of westernmost point of Europe. Um, but you know, we actually have done the walk from central France a couple of times, taking two slightly different routes. And so we thought it'd be nice to set it on that, and have these two characters each doing their own journeys, but but meeting up, um, so and seeing it from the two points of view. And it's a great pl- film about that. that well, well, there's there's, there's the way there's the, you know, we'd be rather the film wasn't there because obviously it means yeah, um, there's been some fiction done on it already. But um, but equally, I think there's there's room for more than one thing in that space. So yeah, this is not a romance or romantic comedy, the uh, Martin Sheen movie. Um, but it is about relationships again. Yeah, look, it's yeah, it is um, the most important thing. It is, and you know, we, we wanted um, we wanted to have these two people each have their own you know, hero's journey, as it were, their own growth um, arcs. Um, but but they would you know, interact, and that would be that would be part of it as well. Plus, I think the the interest for people reading it um, about the, the practicalities of, of doing the walk that so. We did a very early draft. In fact, our earliest draft was we, we had this crazy idea of writing two separate books. I'd write the man's story and would write the woman's story. And you could, the, in a couple, the man could buy the man's story, the woman could buy the woman's or vice versa, and they could read it and compare notes and so forth or swap books. And our publisher thought that was a really dumb idea. <laughs> so, so we went back to this alternating, this alternating chapter idea. But even when we had just that one story, we got two good friends to read it in the crudest sort of form three year, more than three years ago. And uh, one of them promptly went off and walked the Camino. So, 
if it can inspire people to do that, to do that sort of thing, that'd be great. That's fabulous. What a great idea. And you're, you're combining adventure and health and, and relationships, all the things that matter in life. Yeah? Well, yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's I, I imagine there'll be a lot of appeal to people um, in, their, in their 40s and upwards um, who make up a fair proportion of people doing doing the walk. But, you know, there's younger people doing it as well. And it's, um, yeah, as I say, there are many memoirs set on the Camino. And to the point of difference, so this is fiction. Um, I guess the best-known fiction, which is very close to memoir, is Polo Coelho's um, The Pilgrimage. Um, but that's a very personal story you know, in his style, sort of philosophical. Yes. Um, this, is, this is quite different. So this is a light, uh, a light read in terms of like it's not heavy philosophical. It's it's no, well, it's just a fun, you know. A, this, a is, fun this is this is this is bit of bit of escapism. Which look, whatever you write, you 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 try to have some substance underneath. Because if you only write froth, if you only write comedy, um, then th- there's no there's no strong desire to keep on reading. And, and look, you know, both Anne and I have got, I guess, what do you say, reasonable intellectual credentials. You would like to think that at the end of it, we've managed to write something that, that makes people think about something rather than just go on a, you know, a light journey. Yes, I, I love the, the thing that you said in, um, in a previous interview was to make them think, to make them laugh, to make them cry. Yeah, yeah, it, it, <laughs> All those it was it was it was Tim Ferguson, the uh, the my comedy mentor, who said that to me. Uh, make him laugh, make him cry, make him think. Uh, he doesn't. He claims any originality for it. But I actually ran into him this morning uh, at the hotel uh, as he was as he was taking off. And you know, this is a guy with uh, multiple sclerosis who um, does a stand up act around yeah. Yeah, around I that. I just did a two day workshop with him a few months ago. Yeah. on comedy writing. He's very very. Yeah, look, I mean, I mean, comedy writing is is a very underrated skill. I think you know, people, you know, comedy has always been seen as a bit of a low, lower sort of art. Not many truly comedic books win um, win major prizes and so forth. And yet, it takes a great intellect to be able to to convey that comedy through through prose. You know, well, well it, it it certainly takes craft. Um, you know, there is craft to comedy, and when you see someone trying it who doesn't do it well, um, uh, the, the the challenge with comedy, I think, is that comedy is culturally sensitive, and it's sens- and by cult- and that means it's sensitive to, to time and so on. We all talk about dad jokes and so forth. But they were they were probably funny to dad's generation. Um, so so one of the one of the risks with writing comedy is that the work will will date, and, and um, you need to be a bit conscious of that. Did you test out your comedy? I mean, you had some very funny bits in, in The Rosie Project. Did you test out, uh, you know, did you watch people read it and see, oh, if, yeah, they, yeah. see if they laughed? Yeah, look, what I do, one of the techniques I've got for my, my first readers are very important to me. And I know that some writers just don't, you know, they go straight to the publisher There's no, no or editor. There's no first reader in there. I had 10, um, I think actually more than 10 first readers for the best of Adam Sharp. Um they're all listed at the end of the book, so it's probably more than 10 now. Extra people jumped on board. And, and I really value their feedback. But what I get them to do um, is I give them three pens. And I say, go through the manuscript, blue if you're bored, red if you just could not put this thing down, you couldn't go to sleep, and purple, or I give them some other colour, or green, whatever they've got. If you are, and the best of Adam Sharp, I said emotionally engaged. If you are, you know, feeling, if, you, if you've got tears in your eyes or whatever. In the Rosie books, um, it was if you're laughing. Um, so you then aggregate those, bring it 
back together what everybody said. And if, like, if two people have marked the passage as blue, it's got to go. It's yeah. There's no point running that passage if you can't keep people's attention. Stephen King said the same thing. He said, you give it to lots of people. If they all say something different, you're on a winner. Yeah, <laughs> yep. No, that's true. But if two people say, if two people say the same thing to you, um, you've got to, you've got to take note. But I mean, humour is so specific. I can remember my editor really just saying the funniest line in the Rosie Project or something. I thought it was it was just a, a throw. Yeah, sure, short was meant lightly and so on, but I, it wouldn't have you laughing out loud. I think look, I think the thing with with um, with humour is that particularly to, to laugh out loud humour as a sort of ride that was clever. Um, can I talk a bit about that? Because yes. I think as, 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 a cra- as a craft thing, I think it's something that yeah. um, that is, is generally not not particularly well done. I mean, what people say about the the Rosie books is they laugh out loud funny, and they say that in a um, way that they very seldom get that in books, and even less commonly in fiction. You know, when did you last laugh out loud reading a book? And I say, oh, it was uh, David Sedaris or some you know mem- memoir writer. Most of us get our laugh out louds out of performance. We get it from um, television, movies, and, and stand-up comedy, um, rather than from the from the written word. And I think part of that is the collective side of it. You know, if you're in a movie theatre full of people, then the, or, or a stand-up performance, and you're all drinking and so forth, is that that collective thing. But I think also we we are not primed anymore, at least, to laugh much at the one-liner. We we want we want the scene. And, and I think most comedy I see in books is um, is the one-liner, the witty remark and so forth, often the author drawing attention to themselves. You, at that moment, you say, wasn't that a smart one from whoever's writing the book? Aren't they being clever? And suddenly, you're actually taken out of the story. While they, you know, When they say, so, Mary walked into the room wearing a dress that, you know, and they've got some hilarious you know, simile or, or whatever, except you realise that it's got nothing to do with the story itself, really. It's the author imposing themselves on the page and saying, look how smart I am with my writing. Um, so it's writing that draws attention to itself for me, um, which for me is a negative. What I think is is um, that we learn, or that I learned from um, uh, my screenwriting background, is that if you want people to laugh at they've got to write a scene. You've got to write something which is like a sitcom or a, you know, you can you've got to see the whole thing playing out, escalating, misunderstandings, turnaround, um, reversals. These are the things that make you laugh. So um, if you want laugh out loud, you've got to write funny scenes, not funny lines. Yeah, that's, and what you've said really um, resonates with me. I think it was um, uh, Meg Fox who said, Right to express, not to impress, oh. and that's that's a danger with writers, isn't it? Oh, look, particularly with comedy, particularly yeah. with comedy, um, and, and I think if you're writing in the third person, um, it, it's particularly dangerous. You see it a lot in chiclet, um, where, where you know, the writer is, is busy being very funny about their characters, so the writer becomes a participant in the book, um, you, you, the narrator, you know, and, and you start thinking about that and say, wasn't that a clever thing to say? For me, if you can. Um, if everything comes out of character and out of the characters on the page, the writer's taking a back seat but playing that. So um, you know, in the Rosie books, I'm able to use Don Tillman's voice, and, and Don Tillman is intrinsically a funny guy. He's he's a, basically an observational comedian, um, but it's his voice. It's the stuff that he's saying. Um, Graham Simpson is nowhere to be seen. This is this is you know, Don Tillman is doing. It. I think first person helps you a lot, a lot there. And then you know, your humour has to be consistent with character. I think there's a massive temptation to 
um, to make people do what you want them to do for the sake of the joke. And we should always know that, not just in comedy, but in all kinds of writing, that all behaviour has to be motivated. Um, so if the joke you know, has someone doing something they wouldn't normally do, you've got a choice. You either drop the joke or you change the motivation for the person, the circumstances around them, or even the character of the person if they're a minor part, to make, um, to make that joke work. But you don't just make people do something because it's funny. Really wise advice there, and and uh, something that a lot of authors probably you know haven't considered. So thank you for that. That's really good. Um, I'm just going to finish up now with asking you a couple of questions. What's the biggest point that you have learned over your career of writing? What would be the most valuable lesson you've learned? Okay, it's something I learned in my PhD. There you go. It's I, I did design theory for my for my PhD. One of the one of the principles of design is you can always make it better and and I think you know and that translates into things like good writing is rewriting you can always make it better and no matter how much you are in love with that that first draft um, you, you you've got to get away from it knowing that you can you can make it better um, and that, that translates into um, and so, so really, the, the massive part of the writing process is making what you're making your first draft better. Um, and, and I would say to writers, um, you can always flip open if you, once you've got a draft, you can always flip open the lid of your laptop. You've only got ten minutes at the airport, or whatever. Say, all right, I'm going to find my worst paragraph in the whole book, and I'm going to make it better. And when you've done your ten minutes, you you flip the lid closed again. It's just a continuous process, and I put hours and hours and hours. You see. I'm not, I'm not as talented as Zadie Smith. I can't get it right first time. Um, but I figure if I work long enough and hard enough, I can approach, I can reach a higher standard of writing. So, so I would well, say to you people... Certainly yeah, have, right? yeah. You certainly have, You certainly have. And the last question, what was the greatest uh, moment of joy in your whole writing? Uh, there's probably yep. many, No, no, no. what's no, the no greatest question. moment? Uh, getting shortlisted for the Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript. Um, because that was the point where I had external feedback that said my writing was real writing, if you like. I'd only had family feedback and so on, put it into the award, and the fact that it was short, so I eventually won the award and got publishing contracts, all those good things that came out of it. But that was the moment where I thought, whoa, someone thinks I can write. Yes. And, and I could see the doors opening then, that I might not be ready yet, but I could actually write. Well, um, I'm looking forward to interviewing you third time when your next book comes out I love talking to you um, I'm going to have to let you go you're, um, you're a busy man and um, thank you very much for sharing so much thanks again Suzanne we hope you enjoyed this podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au and if you are a reader or a writer then hop on over to our website and subscribe subscribe